This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful we have this time to study your word. And as we reflect upon your word and we reflect upon uh, what our Lord Jesus Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we pray that we might be able to focus and think clearly, that we might understand not only what he said, but what its challenge is to us, that we might recognize that there is a responsibility that we have to respond in obedience to what the Word teaches. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our study in Matthew chapter 5. This morning we'll cover part of verses 17 through 20. I'm not sure we'll get through all four verses this morning because this is a uh, somewhat challenging uh, passage. And it's important for our understanding of what is coming in the remainder of this particular chapter And it's a challenge because in the history of Christianity, a couple of questions have always been a problem in Christian teaching and in the Christian life. The first is, and they're related problems, the first is, what in the world do we do about sin after we're saved? Now, that may not seem like a major problem for some of us, but it is a major problem and has been a major problem in the history of Christianity, and and it is a problem for many people. In the early church, they thought that baptism, water baptism, actually actually cleansed us from sin. Problem was, what do you do after you get baptized? How do you get cleansed from the sin after baptism? And there were many people who... Uh, did not get baptized until they were close to death because they didn't want too many sins on their account after salvation. The Emperor Constantine was one like that. He waited till he was almost on his deathbed before he was baptized. Later on, Roman Catholic theology introduced a system of penance in order to deal with salvation, I mean with sin problems after salvation. So that has been a problem. And the related question and problem is, what do you do with all these passages in Scripture that talk about living a righteous life? What in the world is that all about? Is this living a righteous life in order to get saved? Or how in the world can we actually live a righteous life when we still struggle struggle with sin? As a result of those two problems, people have had enormous difficulty understanding some of the things that Jesus teaches 
in the Sermon on the Mount, especially when we get to the last verse of the four that we're looking at this morning and uh, partially next week. Let me just read through these four verses, and then as we address this today, I'm sort of going to talk about the last as we move back to the first. This is important to understand. This, these four verses are not a conclusion to the previous 16 verses that related to the uh, the introduction really to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes gave us a focus on the character expected of the disciple who is preparing himself to serve in the announced and anticipated kingdom of heaven. have to keep that in mind. What happens starting in verse 17 is that Jesus is moving out of the introduction into the main body of the sermon uh, that covers verses 21 down through 48 in chapter in chapter 5. So this is an introduction in verses 17 through 20 to prepare for what he is about to say. So he states in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we look at this, we need to just do some initial observations, sort of a flyover to orient ourselves to just the structure of these four verses. And I have inserted some of the key Greek phrases, structural phrases in the uh, in the text so that we can understand that these four verses have to be taken as a whole. They're related to one another. It's a development of one single thought as an introduction to the rest of the chapter. The initial statement that Jesus is making is telling them that that in spite of what he is about to say, it should not be understood that he is challenging the law. He's not going to abolish the law. He's not going to change the law. He has come to fulfill the law. He says, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Then he explains something more about that that's indicated grammatically with the uh, word that occurs near the beginning of the second verse that's translated in English for. That indicates an explanation or an expansion of what was just said. So verse 18 is uh, grammatically connected as part of verse 17. Verse 19, he says, whoever therefore, so the first, really the first word, if I were translating that, I would put the therefore first, and that indicates a conclusion, something, something derived in addition to what has been stated already. So obviously verse 19 flows directly out of the thought of verses 18 and 19. Now, so far, so good. Most people don't have a problem with that. 
Well, we have a problem, and where difficulty comes in is in verse 20. In some uh, versions, you will see that set off as the beginning of a new paragraph, and in some uh, explanations of this, there is a break that is made contextually, uh, or conceptually, rather, between verse 20 and verse 19, that verse 20 is introducing a new thought. But verse 20 also begins in the Greek with the particle gar, which indicates an explanation or expansion of what was just said in the statement before. That means verse 20 is continuing the same thought of verses 19, 18, and 17. So this must be understood as a as an integral whole. Now, one of the reasons that I said this is because what we, when we read verse 20, the question naturally arises, what kind of righteousness are we talking about here? Now, many of us have been taught, this is where you're going to get confused, and that's okay. Uh, I have a Friday morning group of pastors that meet, and we've been going through a number of different studies the last a year almost now, and part of this involved dealing with, uh, we've been reading through a couple of different books, and part of this involved an analysis of these passages. And we really dug down into this, and we all were forced by the grammar and by the context to recognize that this verse has nothing whatsoever to do with the kind of righteousness needed to uh, be saved in the kind of righteousness related to individual salvation. That's how many of us have understood this, that the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching a works righteousness to get into heaven. And what, so what Jesus would be teaching here under that idea is that you need a different kind of righteousness to have individual salvation, not a works righteousness, but an imputed righteousness. Remember, Scripture teaches two kinds of righteousness, that which is given to us or credited to us at the instant of salvation, and that which is the result of our Christian life walking by means of the Spirit. Scripture teaches that at the instant of our faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father credits to us the righteousness of Christ. He gives that to us. It's called imputed righteousness, and that is now ours, and we're saved not on the basis of our morality or ethics or righteousness or anything that we've done. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. The classic illustration of imputed righteousness is used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, and there he goes back to Genesis 15, where he talks about the fact that that Abraham had already believed or trusted in God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, that means that this concept of imputed righteousness goes all the way back to the beginning of the need for salvation in the garden. If it goes back to Abraham, it goes all the way back to the garden that even though this is not a fully developed doctrine in the Old Testament, Genesis 15.6 clearly states that Abraham was saved on the same basis as we. He was saved by receiving imputed righteousness from God. So is this passage talking about imputed righteousness, or is it talking about another category of righteousness? Now, the point that I'm going to be making here is that contextually, And context is really king. I I just say this over and over again, that when you take the con out of, 
when you take the text out of context, you're left with a con job. And often what happens is we, we ignore the context and we look at these verses and we just pull it out and use it for another reason. It, it may be a true statement that we're saved on the basis of imputed righteousness, which is not the kind of righteousness the Pharisees and Sadducees were teaching, but that's not what this verse is saying. And often I find this to be true as we hear pastors and we hear teachers teach true things, but that's not really what the passage they're using is saying. So we have to really evaluate these things, and it's important for us to go back to a couple of different things I keep emphasizing as we go through this, and that is that Jesus is talking to his disciples. He is talking to those who are already personally individually saved, as we would say. They're individually justified. They already have their eternal destiny in heaven secured by believing in Jesus as the promised Messiah. So he's not talking to unbelievers about how to be individually justified. He is talking to believers about how already justified people are supposed to live. Now, that's important to understand. If Jesus is telling people who are already believers how to live, then we can't interpret anything in Matthew 5 through 7 as related to to how a person secures their eternal destiny in heaven. So even though it might look like that, the context means it's not talking about that. So we have to understand that. He's talking about the kind of righteousness the kind of character qualities, that was the focus in the opening Beatitudes, the kind of character qualities that are expected of a disciple, and that those who develop these qualities after salvation will have a specific role and and unique responsibilities in the coming kingdom. You see, the message that is governing Jesus' ministry at this time Remember from the announcement of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Jesus continued with that same message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after this, we will see that when he sends out his disciples to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he he will say, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the house of Israel and Judah and announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is announcing that because he's the king, The presence of the kingdom is near, and so we have to be prepared to live in the kingdom. Now, he's not talking to church-age believers at this point, but the principles apply because we're still waiting for the kingdom as they were, and we have to prepare ourselves for the kingdom within the dynamics of of church-age spirituality just as they had to prepare themselves for the presence of the kingdom in terms of the spiritual life at the time of Israel. So Jesus is talking to believers about the demands of discipleship. He's not talking to unbelievers about how to get into heaven. But what is confusing is when we look at that last line in the last verse, he's talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, many of us automatically think that entering the kingdom of heaven means securing eternal salvation. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says that you have to be born of the flesh and born uh, born of water and born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom. That's what he says to Nicodemus. And everybody says, well, that's talking about regeneration, and it is. 
The term entering the kingdom, though, is one of those terms that has a certain ambiguity to it, and depending on context, it's either talking about what we would call phase one salvation justification, or it can be talking about phase two salvation. Let me show you an example. This is in Acts chapter 14. This is a passage uh, that's taken out, uh, the verse is taken out of Paul's message uh, in Acts 14.22, are describing his ministry to those in Acts 14, and he says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples. That tells us right away that people he's teaching are already justified. They're disciples. They're already saved. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples by exhorting them, an instrumental participle there, by exhorting them or by challenging them to continue in the faith. See, this is talking about a spiritual life truth, not justification truth. And what, how did he do this? He said, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. See what he said? He's talking about entering the kingdom of God. He uses the same phraseology. Well, if they're already saved, they're going to go to heaven. So he can't be talking about how to be justified because justification is by faith alone. It's not by works. But here he is saying entering the kingdom is conditioned upon how you handle the adversities of life. Well, if this is talking about getting justified, then what Jesus would be saying is that in order to go to heaven, you have to handle the adversities of life the correct way. That's a work salvation so he's, he can't be talking about that. That would contradict so many passages like Titus 3, 5, which I just mentioned, and Ephesians 2, 8, 9, says, which teaches that it's, um, that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So he's got to be using the phrase, enter the kingdom of God, differently. Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are synonymous terms. Matthew, as I pointed out in the introduction, uses kingdom of heaven as instead of the term kingdom of God, because the use of the name of God was offensive to many Jews. He's writing to a Jewish Christian audience, and so he used a synonym, kingdom of heaven, which was a, a common way of, of talking around the use of the word God. So when we look at the last verse there, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven contextually, we know that Jesus is talking to already saved disciples about how they should live as growing, maturing disciples. If Matthew 15, 520 is talking about how to get into heaven, it's jarring because that's not what the context anywhere in Matthew 5 through 7 is discussing. So by looking at the usage of the term, we discover that there are a number of passages and we'll look at some of those later on where the term, the phrase, enter the kingdom of heaven, and similar phrases are used to refer to uh, spiritual life uh, truth rather than justification truth. Now, <clears throat> now, as we look at this, it raises several questions in our mind. Uh, as we read through the first part of 5, 17, and 18, Jesus begins this by stating that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What Jesus is going to do in this next section from verses 21 down through 48 is to challenge the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law. This was an interpretation that was very popular. There 
interpretation uh, called the oral law had been dominant within Jewish thinking and rabbinical thinking for about 150 to 200 years so that it was embedded in the thinking of the people. And what Jesus wants to uh, convince his hearers of is that he's not coming to violate or to teach against the actual teaching of the Mosaic law, but that he is going to establish it and fulfill it. He's not abolishing the law, but what he is going, what he's about to do is to teach the real meaning of the law as God intended. He's going to give us the divine viewpoint interpretation of the Mosaic law. Now this should raise several questions in our thinking. What kind of questions are you thinking about as we read this verse? What does, um, and Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Did they have an expectation somehow that the Messiah would abolish the law? They did not. Uh, but they were confused about it because of the way Jesus taught about the law in contrast to the way the Pharisees taught about the law. Another thing we need to address is what does Jesus mean when he says destroying the law or the prophets? What does that phrase law or the prophets describe? And what does he mean when he says that he will fulfill the law or the prophets? These are critical issues. Now, to understand this, we must realize that after the Jews returned to the promised land in 538 B.C., remember God punished the northern kingdom, took them out of the land in 722 B.C., and then the sole southern kingdom continued on for another uh, hundred and. 40, 150 years or so before they were finally taken out in 586 B.C. And then the Jews were out of the land for 70 years under divine discipline. In 538, they returned to the land. They returned in stages. It wasn't just one massive return. It was a return in stages. The initial return under Zerubbabel uh, consisted of about 45,000. And they had to rebuild their country. They had to rebuild the institutions. They had to rebuild their cities. They had to reestablish the, the fields. One of the priorities was to rebuild the temple, and they had a lot of trouble rebuilding the temple. That's what the book of Haggai is about challenging them to finally complete the temple, which they did in 516 B.C. And they went through a period of rebuilding from 538 B.C. to approximately 440 B.C., almost 100 years, where they had to rebuild their cities and towns and villages. They had to rebuild the temple, and they had to rebuild the fortifications and defenses of the city. And most importantly, they had to rebuild the spiritual life of of the Jewish people. These rebuilding activities are described in the historical books of the Scripture in Nehemiah and Ezra, and the spiritual challenges are described in the books of Haggai and Malachi. Now, the Old Testament period of Revelation ended at approximately 440 B.C., and from 440 B.C. until the New Testament period, approximately uh, 30 A.D., There is no revelation. God is silent. Now, there are books that were written about the history of the Jews during that time. The Jews never considered these books to be part of God's word. They never considered them to be canonical, and they're referred to as apocryphal books. 
Some of these books are included as part of the Old Testament in Roman Catholic Bibles, but they're not included in either Jewish texts or the or Protestant Bibles. But they're good for information about that intertestamental period, and especially in the books of First and Second Maccabees. And during that period, we read that there's a development of rabbinical theology. The people were concerned about the spiritual life. The rabbis were concerned. And so they, they recognized that God had punished them by taking them out of the land by, because they had disobeyed the law. Now, the Mosaic law consists of not 10 commandments, but 613 commandments, as you know. And what they decided over a period of time, this roughly came into practice around 200 or so B.C., was that they needed to construct a series of commandments like a fence around the original 613, and that if that would protect the 613 commandments from being disobeyed, as long as you kept these additional commandments, then you you weren't threatened by breaking one of the uh, 613 commandments in the Torah. And so this is what is usually referred to in the New Testament by the traditions of the fathers. And that became the core of rabbinical theology and was uh, the foundation of what was taught by the Pharisees. So this is what Jesus is teaching against because they had developed a works basis for righteousness in contrast to what was originally taught in the Mosaic Law. So Jesus is is challenging this. And in the coming uh, section, starting in verse uh, 21, down through verse 48, we'll discover that six times Jesus makes a statement along the lines of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Notice verse 21, you have heard that it was said. And then verse 22 begins, but I say to you. Uh, You look at verse 27, you have heard that it was said, uh, verse 28, but I say to you. Uh, Verse 31, we read, furthermore, it has been said, verse 32, but I say to you. Verse 33, Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said, verse 34, but I say to you. Verse 38, you have heard heard that it was said, verse 39, but I tell you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said in verse 44, but I say to you, he is correcting the bad theology of the Pharisees and their uh, their false teaching, their false interpretation of the Mosaic Law. Now, as we look at the Mosaic Law and at the Old Testament, we recognize that the Old Testament clearly taught that there were two kinds of righteousness. This is, this is the theme of really of Deuteronomy and much of the Old Testament is that the Jews have failed to live up to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law wasn't teaching them a works righteousness to get into heaven, but they were viewed as a nation that was already set apart to God, and it was teaching how the saved people were to live. So they understood the concept of uh, imputed righteousness, as I stated earlier, from Genesis 15.6, and then they were teaching. Then the books of Deuteronomy was talking about uh, imputed righteousness. So, putting our familiar chart up here on the screen, we talk about salvation in three senses or three tenses. I think one person even has a book called "The Three Tenses of Salvation." 
In phase one, this is when we believe that Jesus died on the cross for us, we are justified. The word saved, as we use it in common American evangelical uh, language, doesn't mean always mean uh, it's not always used as a synonym for justification in the Scripture. We always use it as if that's what it means, and so it's easy to misinterpret Scripture if we read into every use of saved the meaning of justification. In fact, many times in the book of Romans, saved never is a synonym for justification, and in several other books, and I think in Matthew as well, the word saved is never a synonym for justification. It, the core meaning of the word saved is to be delivered from something. It can be delivered from poor health. It can be delivered from something threatening your life physically, or it can refer to uh, being saved from just uh, the presence or, the, or, excuse me, the power of sin. And so in phase one, we're talking about justification, that we're saved from the penalty of sin. At that instant, our eternal destiny in heaven is secure. But our spiritual life, which begins at that point, doesn't end with that. We have a responsibility now as newborn babes in Christ to grow to spiritual maturity, and that's the process of our spiritual life where we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we walk by the Spirit, studying God's Word, then what is produced in our life when we're, in, when we're walking by the Spirit is what we call divine good to distinguish it from the good works we do just in the power of our sin nature. And this we refer to as experiential righteousness. We're saved from the, pre- from the power of sin. This is what Jesus is talking about to his disciples under this period of the Mosaic Law. He's saying if you're going to be prepared for the kingdom, you have to be obedient to the Mosaic law. You have to develop experiential righteousness in your lives, which is not the kind of experiential righteousness that the Pharisees are talking about. Just some passages that show this from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6.25, and having talked about obedience to the law and loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy 6 says, then it will be righteousness for us. That is, obedience to the law will be righteousness to us. Us, when we walk, that is, when Israelites obeyed the law, then it produced experiential righteousness in their lives. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Deuteronomy 24.13 Moses writes, you shall in any case return the pledge to him again. This is a situation where you have somebody who has made a loan. Uh, They're rather impoverished. And rather than putting them in a deficit position, uh, you return the garment that was given as a pledge uh, so that they can be warm during the night and not go cold. Uh, So return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you. That's treating somebody in kindness. That is experiential righteousness. Another set of verses that's important comes near the end of David's life. This is King David. And David is talking about how the Lord has prospered him in his life. Uh, David, we know, was a great sinner, but he also had great experiential righteousness. 
And in 2 Samuel 22, 21, we read, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. So this is not talking about justification righteousness or imputed righteousness. It's talking about the righteousness of a life of obedience. And he further explains that in verse 22, that this was a result of his keeping the ways of the Lord. He's not talking about securing his justification. He's talking about his spiritual growth, his spiritual maturity, his sanctification from keeping the ways of the Lord. And he has not wickedly departed from my God. David may have been an adulterer. David may have been, uh, may have conspired to commit murder. David may have engaged in grand deception. But David never apostatized in the sense of going into idolatry. He was always loyal to the Lord, and God uh, rewarded him by saying that David was a man after his own heart. It's a great testimony to the grace of God. Second Samuel twenty-two twenty-three, David says, All his judgments were before me, and all of his statues, I didn't depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness. point I'm making is the Old Testament recognized this distinction between imputed righteousness, which secures our eternal destiny, and experiential righteousness, which is to characterize the life of the believer who is walking according to the standards of God's word. This was expected of the king in Second Chronicles 9, 8. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be the king, uh, to be king for the Lord your God, because your God has loved Israel, to establish them forever. Therefore he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. This is experiential righteousness. Psalm 23.3 also talks about this. As the psalmist says, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We are expected to live a righteous life according to the standards of God's word. In this dispensation, it's by walking by the Spirit according to God's word. So Jesus is coming to emphasize that the, that the Pharisees have distorted the, righteous, the righteousness, the experiential righteousness as taught in the law, and that their righteousness is merely a superficial righteousness that has no eternal value whatsoever. So in the coming verses, he's going to contrast the teaching of the disciples with God's original and true intent. So he begins, first of all, by stating very clearly what his intent is. Now, what I'm teaching you is confusing to a lot of people. Even some teachers that you have heard, professors I had at Dallas Seminary, some of the pastors you may have heard have missed, misidentified this. So you may be, you, you, you're sitting there and you've come in and out this morning because you're tired or whatever. This is heavy. And um, all of a sudden you say, is, did he say what I think he said? Yeah. This isn't talking about imputed righteousness. And I've taught that before. So we're trying to get all of this clear. Dr. Dwight Pentecost is still alive. He's 95 years old, I believe, now. And he still teaches at Dallas Seminary. He's been teaching there, I think, since the early 50s. In one of his works, he writes about this, that the interpretation of Matthew 5, 21 to 7, 6 is talking about what constitutes real righteousness. 
and that the real thrust of this whole section is not talking about experiential righteousness, but the kind of righteousness required to get saved. And so the point that Jesus is making in these verses is to convict people that they just don't have the right kind of righteousness to even be saved. He's dead wrong, because that would mean Jesus is talking to unbelievers, but he has forgotten the context of verse 1, where it clearly states that Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. The multitudes aren't there, only the disciples. Now, this is a common mistake, and I'm trying to straighten this out, because this basically helps us understand and also helps us to be able to apply the Sermon on the Mount without getting off track into other areas. But that's an approach that a lot of people have taken in order to solve some of the apparent conflicts and contradictions that are here. So back to verse 17. We've seen the end game. That's what I've done. I've talked about a little bit about that last verse. We've seen the focus so that now we can. it helps us understand a little bit about uh, what, what, why Jesus is starting off and saying the things he's saying in verses 17 through 18. He says to his disciples now, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. Why would he say that? Because they've heard this charge made to him that he's just trying to overthrow Moses. This was a charge that would come from the scribes and the Pharisees, that Jesus is out of line because he is contradicting Moses. What Jesus is going to point out is, no, I'm not abolishing Moses. I'm not trying to tear down Moses. I'm not trying to abolish the Torah. In fact, what I'm giving you is the accurate interpretation of the Torah in contrast to the false teaching of the Pharisees. So when he says, do not think, this is the word namizo, uh, it's an aorist active subjunctive which is used with a, uh, a negative not here to indicate a pro- prohibition. This is the, one of the strongest ways to state a negative command. The word means to think or to suppose or to presume something. And so he's basically telling them, don't get caught in this trap of thinking that I have come to destroy the law. And twice he uses the word destroy. It's the same verb and the same form of the verb in both cases. Uh, it's kataluo, which means to destroy, to demolish, or to annul something, or even to invalidate something. When the, this verb is used of a building or an institution, it has the idea of dismantling or destroying something. When it's used in reference to an authoritative text, it means to declare it to be no longer valid, to, reve- to repeal it, or to annul it. So Jesus is clearly stating, I haven't come to annul or to remove or to destroy the law, the law and the prophets. Now, what is he talking about here when he uses this phrase, the law and the prophets? The phrase is used in several passages in the New Testament, uh, Matthew 7.12, Matthew 22.40, Acts 24.14, Acts 28.23, and Romans 3.21. It refers to the what we would call the Old Testament. According to the Jewish organization of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is made up of three books, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, and they have a, 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 
the word Tanakh, which is how they'll refer to the Old Testament scriptures, is taken from the first consonant in each of those in each of those words. T N K Tanakh refers to the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament, and often it, it's the whole Old Testament, the whole Hebrew scriptures, may be referred to simply as the Torah not just referencing the first five books, but the whole Old Testament may simply be a refer- referenced as the Torah or the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying that he uh, did not come to nullify the, the Old Testament, the law or the prophets, but he came to fulfill. This is the word plerao, which is often used by Matthew to refer to fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've studied that many times, and it has the idea of fulfilling those promises of God that are made in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying that he didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but he's going to fulfill it. He's going to fulfill it in two ways. He's going to fulfill it in terms of his life. He will accomplish the purpose and the goal of the law. He's the only one who has perfectly obeyed the law, and this demonstrated that he is sinless and that he is perfectly righteous and therefore qualified to go to the cross. It was part of his demonstration of his qualifications as the Messiah. And as such, being qualified also means that he would fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Now, another question that we should ask is, well, to what degree of detail will he fulfill these promises? And that's what's covered in the next verse. In Matthew 5.18, he says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. So he is, what he is saying here is that the law will be fulfilled down to the most uh, most the, the smallest minutia in each passage. It's not just the ideas that are important, it's the very words themselves that are inspired by God. We refer to this by the terms verbal and plenary uh, inspiration, that God has revealed the words of Scripture. The very words of Scripture are what's inspired, not the ideas not the concepts, for ideas and concepts are built upon words. You change the word, you change the idea or the concept. So what is the, the word jot, as it's translated in English, is actually the Hebrew letter yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you just change one letter, you can change the meaning of a word. For example, we have in English the word tough. If you change the G to a C, if you just drop off part of that letter, it's the word touch. Completely change the meaning from tough to touch. You add another letter, you have the word though. So you see, one letter can make a huge difference and change the meaning of a sentence. The same thing happens with a tittle. Tittle is actually an English word. It reads the smallest stroke of a letter, and it translates the Greek word kariah, and the Kariah refers to just a small stroke or part of a letter. And what I've put here on the screen for you is the uh, Hebrew letter Beit uh, and the Hebrew letter Resh. And you see that the only difference between the two is the stroke, the horizontal stroke at the bottom. And that can make a difference in a word. For example, in English, we have the word fun. I can say, uh, why don't you, why don't we get together this afternoon and have some fun? 
but if we add a tittle to it, it changes, it closes the two lines, the two horizontal lines in F, closes them off, and we have a pun. You might think that I'm saying let's get together and have a contest making up puns. But if we add another tittle to it, maybe I'm saying let's get together and go for a run. Some of you think that running is fun. I think it's necessary, but not fun. And then maybe um, maybe we're foodies, and we add another tittle, and we're going to get together and enjoy a good bun. See, the adding just one stroke changes the meaning of the word. So Jesus is saying that inspiration extends down to just the smallest letter or smallest stroke. And that's why I make such an important emphasis on uh, looking at the original Greek and understanding the words that are used, and sometimes one word is used, sometimes another word is used, and it's not just for stylistic difference. It's because it con- communicates something slightly different. So Jesus is stating here uh, the doctrine, or referring here to the doctrine of of inspiration of Scripture, that Scripture is verbally inspired. Every word is uh, revealed by God, and that God reveals himself through propositional sentences based upon these individual words, and that that extends down to the very minutia of the text, uh, and not just the form, not just the words themselves, but even the form of the word, whether it's a past tense, whether it's a present tense, whether it's a plural, whether it's a singular, all of this is, is inspired, and therefore it has authority because it comes from God. And so the implication and application for us is that if the word of God, if the word comes from God, then it includes a responsibility on our part to obey it. And that is what Jesus will emphasize when we look at verse 19 is that in contrast to the Pharisees, there are those who teach that you can minimize some commandments, uh, and these will uh, are called uh, the least of these commandments. And that person will be called the least in the kingdom. But those who teach teach the commands of Scripture as they are will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And we'll come back and look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time that we have to look at your word, knowing that this is your word and comes with the, uh, your full authority behind it. Father, we recognize that salvation is not based on works. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that you do not have to pay that penalty. But the only condition is that we are to trust in Christ. It's not something that uh, accrues to us as merit, but the merit is in the work of Christ himself. And so we trust in him, and at that instant we, are, uh, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and you declare us to be righteous. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that by faith alone in him alone you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the realization that we are expected to live a righteous life. We can only do that by walking by the Spirit and by application of your word. 
And we pray that we might be faithful students of your word and faithful appliers of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.